Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast, everybody. We are talking about zombies and the zombie worldview tonight. Thanks to my buddy Nate Spears over here. Nate, what is up? Here he is, everybody. Come on. He's here in the flesh. Hi, you Ryan. can't see him, but I can. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Uh, we're going to introduce ourselves in a bit. Um, just so let you guys know, if this is your first time to listen, what we do is we, we brew theology and we create these communities through healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pubs. We have eight chapters across the country, and we want to thank the Jersey Brew Theology chapter for doing four episodes during the summer. Way to go, Jersey. Woo! If you didn't listen, actually, man, all four episodes are fantastic. Part one and two uh, with uh, Women of Faith and also uh, Catherine Keller, process theologian. Here is a little teaser. Speaking of process theologians and maybe Catherine Keller, we're having an event pre-AAR, what's American Academy of Religion, on Friday, November 16th at the Blue Moon Brewery back in the private room. And we're having an open and relational theology panel with about six or seven theologians from AAR. They'll do some TED like it, TED Talkishes, TED Talks, TED, TED, yes, TED Talkishes, TED Talks. Yeah, mini talks, something like that. And then we'll have Q&A and a panel. It'll be great. Uh, anything else, you know, before we go? Not that I can think of. No? Just remember, uh, share this online. We're at Brew Theology, Facebook and Instagram, at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. The website, brewtheology.org. And yeah, that's how we get listeners. Also, if you go to iTunes, rate it, review it. Five stars would be nice, even if you don't like it. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Okay, so we'll introduce ourselves very quickly in about 20 seconds. You've heard my label before, uh, but if this is your first time listening, I grew up Southern Baptist evangelical in the state of Texas, spent the past 20 years deconstructing a lot of that, gleaned quite a bit from the Anabaptist heritage, the UMC, that's Methodist, the uh, Pentecostal mystical aspects of our tradition, and the first century Jewish aspects of Jesus. So I'm an evolving Anabaptist method, Jewcostal, big tent Jesus guy, with some process and some liberation leanings as well. There you go. And I'm drinking a gin and tonic tonight. Woo! There it is. Hi, I'm Rob. Uh, I grew up in a pretty devout Catholic household. Um, started questioning some of that uh, in terms of the dogma of the Catholic Church. Really got into the Jesuit tradition because uh, I work in education um, and uh, and have sort of um, walked in and out of the Catholic Church. I uh, still label myself a progressive Christian. Um, and uh, favorite author is a Quaker. Um, have uh, done a little bit of study in Buddhism. And uh, so anyway, I um, Richard from our group here in Denver uh, labeled himself as confused last week. So I'm going to take that label. So now I'm drinking like a good Colorado stereotype, uh, tangerine peel pale ale that I brewed in a garage. And it's awesome. I third that. Yeah, that's, it is very good. Uh, I'm Paul Schilling. Um, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, raised uh, Lutheran on my mom's side and Catholic on my father's side. So I was baptized Catholic and then um, my mom and dad divorced and so on and so on. And so I was more formally raised Lutheran. Um, when I was about 17, I started kind of questioning everything and uh, ended up as an atheist. And I think that's why I was invited. I think I'm the token atheist, although I'm not 100% We're about 50% sure. atheist and agnostic, so you're in good company. Oh, no, I'm always in, in <laughs> good company. But tonight, you might be the token atheist. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, group. tonight, in this group here, I might be the token atheist. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that might have been why I was invited. Yeah, I'm just excited to be here. This is a really cool podcast. This is a really cool group for anybody in the Denver area that's looking for people that want to talk openly about what they feel and what they think and what they believe and are open to things, criticism, uh, skepticism, um, confirmation of their beliefs. Uh, these are the people to hang out with. Um, I've been very impressed with them so far. Hi, my name is Nathan Spears, and <clears throat> I was also raised in the evangelical Baptist tradition in Texas. Um, Hook them horns, everybody. <laughs> College football season is upon us. I do not endorse that remark. Um, so um, I took a, a break from my faith as well, like I think a lot of people. And um, I've been uh, coming back to my faith or maybe a different approach to my faith, in part thanks to one of the speakers or one of the thinkers we'll talk about tonight, Jonathan Paggio. Um, I've been spending some time in orthodoxy 
and thinking a lot about phenomenology. And um, I think what's important to me is that my faith helped me understand and deal with reality rather than um, having to compartmentalize some aspect of reality in order to continue practicing my faith, right? Which I think was a big part of why I left the tradition of my youth was because I felt like it was ignoring too much of reality and telling me not to look at things, don't think about that. And um, coming back around to the idea that a faith can actually help me um, integrate all that and and have an anti-fragile faith and an anti-fragile experience of life. That's where I'm at. Hi, I'm Christina. I grew up in a heavily Baptist household. Um, my grandfather is an indep- what is a former independent fundamental Baptist preacher in Florida um, that continued on into my education where I went to a private school that was based in a church. So heavily, heavily evangelical, heavily Baptist. Um, now I'm kind of more of an non-denominational slash monotheist pluralist. So basically everyone's like, what in the world's that? But picture yourself and everyone sees a different side of you, whether it's your, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your dog, your significant others. Um, and why can't God be the same way? You know, cause he reveals himself differently to everyone. So he reveals himself differently to Jewish, to Muslims, to their pastafarians who believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Um, that yes that is a real thing so um so that's where i'm at at the moment uh this is janelle and i was born and raised in the church of the nazarene i served in ministry there for over 20 years i currently um am here in denver and i have been attending a progressive uh church um i generally go with the label of progressive christian though saying the word christian in today's culture is a little iffy so um i like jesus and i will keep doing that but i don't like what some of his supposed followers are doing lately i love jesus but i drink a little but i cuss a little (laughs) kind of one of those things totally is that what progressive means these days (laughs) that we're the fun people yeah so we're all going to hell but we'll all be there so it'll be a great time so please join us (laughs) so if you hear crickets or thuds on the ground that's, those are apples dropping or kids screaming in the background don't worry don't be alarmed we're actually outside tonight this is our first time here out in the yeah my backyard this is great that's so, awesome yeah this is we're gonna light a fire in a little bit things are gonna get nice we're gonna invite the zombies in here <laughs> yeah those fences are pretty low pretty sure we'd be dead quick yeah they're well well us. hold on is this gonna be a slow zombie or a fast zombie Shaun of the Dead. We can survive. <laughs> we've got we've got some tools back in there somewhere. Shall we shall we all go hang out in the Winchester and learn about zombies and wait for all this to blow over? Perhaps. So uh Christina will be the zombie culture rip, pop reference of the night. So there she is. And so Nate, we we do have to ask you, why zombies, why worldview, why together? I know you want to start with worldview. So give us a little synopsis before we get going, because there's a lot here that we we could have had about 20,000, 20, I would say, conversations last week at the pub. Right. So what, so what happened was, I was I've just been exploring a lot intellectually, philosophically, religiously, and I came across these two thinkers who had both come to the same conclusion about zombies. And I found that really fascinating, because one of them is a cognitive scientist who considers himself a Buddhist. And the other one, I mean, I guess that's kind of a condescending way to to say he's a Buddhist. Um, And the other one, uh, and that's John Vervecki. And the other one, Jonathan Pajo, is an Eastern Orthodox icon carver who makes videos about symbolism. So so they both came to these conclusions about zombies that we'll be talking about here. And I found it fascinating that through, I would say, not completely different lenses, but as it's been part of my experience in exploring these different um, approaches to religious thinking, that a Buddhist cognitive science and an Orthodox Christian both saw enough of the same patterns to come to the same conclusion. So, um, 
So what the worldview is, well, let's just, uh, let's just read the definition we've got here. A worldview is two things simultaneously, a model of the world and a model for acting in that world. It turns the individual into an agent who acts, and it turns the world into an arena in which those actions make sense. So here's an interesting way to think about that. I have this talk with a buddy of mine named Devin, and we talk about how there's this room that has strange rules. And this room, the rule is, you go into this room, and there's two other men in that room. And when the door shuts behind you, you're going to try and hurt one of these other men real bad, and the other one you're mostly going to ignore until he interferes to stop you from hurting the other guy. So that room is the, the, uh, the octagon that you would do cage fighting in, right? So what's interesting about that when you think about it is that you go around in, the, in your normal life and you interact with people in a certain way. You have certain assumptions about how other people are going to act towards you, but you are also able to modify those expectations really quickly and on the fly when you need to. So in this case, you go to a room where all those normal rules get suspended and you act in a completely different way. And so that's kind of a microcosm of the idea that in a worldview, I know what everything, I know what, what type of place the entire world is, and I know how I can situate myself in that world and act in it in a way that makes sense to me and gives my actions meaning. Would you say that most of um, the actions and even the thoughts that we have within a worldview are unconscious? Yes, yes. I think that, um, I mean, I saw someone point this out. There's this idea that with critical thinking, what we do is we are able to examine assumptions that we have and get underneath them, right? So through critical thinking, we can reveal flaws in our, our own assumptions, our own biases, our own stereotypes, things like that, right? But there's, there's maybe a false way to think about critical thinking, which is that what I want to eventually do is be applying critical thinking all the time. The reason that's false is because it would be completely derailing to your experience of life to be constantly examining all of your assumptions all the time. You wouldn't be able to set one foot in front of the other. So one of the functions of culture, of everything around us in our environment, is to lift us up and give us a default set of assumptions that can help us in the world, right? So if my default set of assumptions is that I can assume that other people are positively oriented toward me until they demonstrate that they aren't, right? If the, if the default set of assumptions is that people will act in a friendly way, or at least a neutral way, rather than an antagonistic way, then that gives me a lot of freedom to just ignore 90% of the people who are walking around me and, and do my own thing. But if I live in a culture where, I shouldn't say a culture, if I live in an environment, like, for example, in a war zone, where that's not only not true, but it's the opposite of true, that means I have to pay such close attention to what each person who comes into my experience, what their intentions are toward me, that um, I'm going to spend most of my energy and my attention focusing on whether or not the people who are around me are trying to actively harm me. So, yeah, I think that a lot of what we do is farm out this massive host of expectations that we have about what kind of place the world is. We farm all those expectations out to our culture and to our environment and don't spend time thinking about them. And if some of y'all remember way back about about a year year and a half ago, we had Tink Tinker from the Osage Nation. He was a professor at ILIF here on the podcast. So Janelle and Rob, I know you were there. If you guys could just maybe add a few things with the difference between culture slash ideology and worldview, because I think often we get those two confused. Do y'all remember? I know it was like a year and a half ago. I, I'm going to have a hard time def, um, speaking definitively about it. And Janelle... By all means. Um, <laughs> I don't necessarily remember what Tink uh, talked all about. I know that from my old Christian apologetic days, uh, one of the, the major writers there was talking about worldview, a Christian worldview, and what that meant. And that it um, it meant that it, it did consciously kind of push the way that we interacted with the world. 
And we were, with those assumptions, setting ourselves up in contrast to culture. And so it was a little bit different type of worldview than this one, and one that I know that a lot of evangelicals have had to, to reconstruct as they've come out of it, which is extremely difficult because you still have uh, a lot of reactions and a lot of unconscious stuff that goes on that reflects that worldview that you were in for so long. So I think worldview is... Is I, I think it's a real thing. I've heard arguments that it's not. Um, I think that we do have a way that we look at the world. I don't think we always know how everyone else is looking at the world. Um, but definitely from unconscious bias, um, you know, we do have to do most of our functioning without thinking about it or we wouldn't get anything done. So I definitely see the parallels in and amongst this. So I'm sure we've all seen this example before, but you have somebody who grew up fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical state of Texas. Perhaps, Nate, you and I were that person at one point. Or there are people around us who are very zealous and very righteous and very, um, everything has to be true. And, and there was no, you know, it's either true or false. There was no, there was no gray. So then they deconstruct all this and they go full on left. So they used to vote for W, for Senior, all those guys. And then they're like, no, it's all about Obama and it's all about Clinton or no, let's go to Bernie Sanders. But it's not just who they vote for. It's uh, everything in which they stood for is it's the complete opposite, but they're the same person. They're fighting with the same kind of almost um, similar passion and ways of thinking. And it's it's binary. So there's there's no real gray. There's no there's no paradox, if you will. There's, uh, Parker Palmer, by the way, would not have... Well, he'd have a lot to say about that, but he wrote a book about he it. He did, yeah. <laughs> but but I think when it comes to worldview, like that's Tink would have said, he's like, Dem- Democrats and Republicans, they're the same. Christians and atheists, they're the same. Within a Western worldview, um, it's just you're just changing sides. Whereas in the East, which would be more, I mean, he would say it's different in the in the Native American tradition. But like, let's just, let's just talk Eastern. We had Ved Nanda on the podcast just a couple weeks ago. And, you know, Hindu, then you got Judaism, then you have Buddhism. That's very much more dynamic, less static. It's more egalitarian, less hierarchical, patriarchal. So even within that, like static versus dynamic, uh, you know, this tier up, down versus around the circle, like that changes everything. Well, yeah, I mean, I, man, I know Tink's not listening to this. If Tink's students are listening to this, forgive me for, for how I butcher this, but I'm going I'm to attempt. I listened to the re-listened to the podcast recently and Tink's argument for worldview related to uh related to essentially right it's it's analogous to the water we swim in, right? So to grow up in the United States of America that we live in today, most of our structures, well, I think Tink's argument would be all of our structures are built temporally. They're built hierarchically. They're built up down. They're um and uh, we actually can't escape the, that worldview um, as much as we'd like to critically think about it or, um, or examine it or whatever the case. Um, and Tink talked a lot about the spatial worldview of, the, of particularly the Osage tribe, I believe he talked about most directly because it was most personal to him. Um, and the worldview, the spatial worldview, um, sort of in opposition to the temporal worldview. Uh, and, and it was, it's in, it was interesting in terms of, uh, and, and some of that feels, um, comparable to, to Verveke, but, um, but I'm sure the two of them would disagree on several things. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, as far as Tink, um, that's one of the things that stuck out the most to me in his conversation of worldview. So something happened. We had this enlightenment and Western civilization changed. So if you could take us from that point to why you decided to write about zombies, that would be great. All right. So this one was a little bit tricky because I tried to compress um, Vervecki's course and Paggio's ideas, and I got down to about eight pages and, uh, Which we you can find online and read if you would like. <laughs> That's right. And that link still broken? <laughs> Did somebody fix it? Is it? Oh, I didn't know it was broken in the first place. Is it place. broken? Yeah, it was broken. Oh, I tried bummer. to click on it. All right. We'll fix that. He's like, yeah, Ryan, you just didn't want to read all eight pages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Janelle was very helpful in, in getting eight pages down to two. Ryan, not helpful at all. Not at all. <laughs> I will confess. Um, so... But it was really interesting thinking about, well, which parts of this are the most important and trying to get two pages out of those eight pages. So 
what I think I got to was that um, w- w- the way Vervecki puts this is that the the world of Christendom, what it had given us, and it's not to say that it was perfect at all, and Vervecki wasn't make this this uh, assumption either that it was correct, but what it had given us was a uh, a mythic language and grammar for talking about the structure of reality, about how do we live, who are we, and what are we doing here, right? For example, in Christendom, God created the heavens and the earth, and our purpose is to, uh, to be a microcosm of God, to be in God's image, and to act in the world in such a way that glorifies God, right? So Verrecki would say that's a, um, that's a mythic grammar for understanding who we are. What happens during the Enlightenment is that science comes along and starts attacking some of these assumptions or some of these axioms of the Christian worldview, but it does so in a really interesting way in that it doesn't, it doesn't take an orthogonal turn from Christianity. It, 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 it almost replaces some of these uh, axiomatic assumptions with materialist objective stories in such a way that begin to pull the meaning or to pull the metaphysical foundation out from under Christendom. So, for example, instead of the world being a place that God created where we exist to act in it and give glory to God, we live in a world that was created by natural processes and humans emerged out of those natural processes via natural selection. So we don't have an ultimate meaning to our existence, a capital A absolute um, truth about our origin. And in that world, we don't therefore have a capital P purpose, right? So there's a few of these types of axioms that science and materialism undermine in a way that will eventually lead to this uh, expression of the zombie as a, an expression of the fears that all of the meanings that we feel we should be getting from life are actually meaningless. And, um, and so we can go through those, those different ways in which the zombie is an expression of these fears uh, that in a strange way, and maybe we can get into this a little bit, are a result of undermining the stories that we tell ourselves, if that makes sense. So just a quick question. Um, So you were saying that science or the enlightenment tells a story about where we come from and, and what our purpose is, and those stories undermine the previous religious stories. Is that correct statement? Yes. Okay, and then... By doing that, it's going to lead to this zombie nihilism. Is that the conclusion? I'm saying that it has led to um, this anxiety about, uh, uh, yes, the, this anxiety that the meanings that we want to feel in our own existence are actually meaningless. Meaningless in what way? I, that's, that's where you lose me. Because I, I don't see updating the story from a story based on no evidence or very little evidence to one based on more acutely attuned evidence as we get better and better at describing our history, our natural history, the forces that that have brought the universe together or brought our, our earth together, our solar system together. Uh, abiogenesis that have led to life on on the planet, evolution, all those things that have led to what we where we are now. I don't know how that story leads to nihilism. Perfect. So Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, so we can get into that. Let's yeah. Do no. It. Maybe I jumped ahead. No. No. no it's it's all good. We're, we'll get into it for sure. This is this it's a great is transition. Now you now you know it's coming, guys. So we have a zombie cheat sheet, and we're gonna go through these bullet points. As Westerners, by the way, this is a very Western thing to have bullet points. Eastern people, they tell a story. We may tell stories later. It's fuzzy and hard to understand. Bullet points are better. They're better because we're trained. 
due to a worldview that tells us that bullet points are better. Okay, so the, we're going to go around the circle here so you don't hear the same voice. So humans want meaning in their origin. Zombies are fundamentally an accident. They stem from disease or plague. They create a nihilism that is hard to overcome as there is no explanation for why this is happening. This is an expression of the fear that we are a cosmic accident. Humans want to believe that we choose our own path, and thus we find meaning in our choices. Zombies move like marionettes, slaves to their desires. This is an expression of the fear that we have no free will, that our sense of choice is an illusion. Humans want meaning from group participation and consensus. Zombies have a mob, mob mentality that is driven only by desire. They do not respond to each other. They are a horde of individuals driven to destroy the thing that keeps them alive. This is an expression of the fear that there is nothing important about the things we do with other people and the things we decide as a group. Humans long for identity and meaning. Zombies have neither. The imagery of eating the brain draws us into the nihilism that the monster represents. It wants to eat the brain because it cannot engage with what the brain makes real, identity, meaning, and personhood. In contrast, the only way to kill a zombie is to kill its brain, quote, obliterating mind to obliterate mindlessness, end quote. This is an expression of the fear that our mind is an illusion and the brain is all that there is. Humans connect with others by, quote, seeing into the soul of others, unquote, and find meaning in the mutual recognition of soul. The eyes of the zombie are empty, its gaze vacant. There is no one home. The same can be said of its absence of soul. This is an expression of the fear that we have no soul. Humans want to believe that our actions have meaning, and therefore that some actions are better than others, leading to our ideas of good and evil. Zombies are not evil because they have no identity. There is no one to blame for the zombies' actions because there is no one home. Similar to terminal illness, they kill indiscriminately, irrespective of categories and boundaries. This is an expression of the fear that when man exists without a soul, there is no morality. Humans want even death and destruction to be meaningful, to be part of the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. In the religious macrocosm of the Christian apocalypse, we want the destruction of the entire world to signal the rebirth of the world. Zombies turn this notion of apocalypse on its head. Instead of hope, the resurrection of the zombie is empty, and the destruction of the human world is not followed by anything but more death. Life returns an empty shell with no possibility of rebirth, renewal, or hope. The, zo- quote, the zombie apocalypse breaks the world without enhancing it and resurrects the body without bringing the abundant life that Jesus promised, end quote. That's from Verbecki. This is an expression of the fear that our death has no meaning. Humans want their activities to inform them, to shape who they become, so that looking backward, they can understand the meaning of the events of their lives. Zombies get no reward from their own activities, even when they get what they want. Their desire is not satiated, nor can they use the ingested food to regenerate themselves into something new. They are literally going through the motions. This is an expression of the fear that the events of our lives are not actually connected, that we don't grow as a result of them. Just to be clear, that's the end of the list. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we're through the cheat sheet there. So... The, the, I guess the argument um, is that the zombie is this expression of alienation, of separation from the meaning in our lives, meaning which the stories that we had told previously connected us to, but that the stories that we're telling ourselves now about our origin and about who we are, that we don't find or feel connection to meaning through those stories. Thus, we're just consumers, and yeah, that's that's what we do. Right, like they say in The Walking Dead, we are the walking dead, right? The fear is that we are the zombies, not not that someone, not that a zombie is going to appear and bite us, but that we're already, we're already dead, that there is nothing meaningful. And I don't think anyone would say that out loud, but I think that the, the fact that so many people have identified with the idea of the zombie and that it's evolved and spread through all of these different cultural expressions is showing that people's, you know, consciously or, or subconsciously identify with these stories for reasons that maybe they would even have trouble articulating. 
I was just going to say like in everyday life, I've, we see zombies, you know, how many times have we zoned in on our phone and have been oblivious to the world? You know, we were so self-focused on ourselves, you know, and what's, you know, three feet in front of us that, you know, if Ed McMahon walked, you know, walked right down the block and said, Hey, you know, first person gives me, you know, first person here gives me a billion dollars. Like, we wouldn't even notice that. Yeah, and I found that interesting. It's so simple when you see it from like a viewer watching the screen, whether you're watching The Walking Dead or any other zombie movie, is that there is this mass and they're all, uh, and they're walking, but yeah, at the same time, they have no connection with the other and they're all about themselves. And I'm like, holy shit, that's that's really a, a American consumerism, capitalism to, its, to the T. And yet, it's a part of our worldview that we're not aware of until we take a step back and we watch it on a TV screen. Or I had that moment last week too, Rob, and I know you're a fellow football fan as well. I don't know if we have any other NFL or college football fans listening or even around the circle. Nate, I know you love the football. I'm just, I'm just kidding. He hates it. But like, you hate the, football? The, he doesn't hate it. He just thinks it's... Hates a strong word. <laughs> it's a strong word. Dislikes. But, you know, you, you asked the question of, you know, from all these concussions that have been happening and, and what we know scientifically about what's going on in the brain and these people having these horrible stories with their families and their friends. And, and my, my father-in-law, he played professional football and he does not recommend the sport. Neither do his colleagues these days. But who's the zombies? Are is it, I mean, the players down there? Or the fans. And around the circle last week, we were, our, our table said, well, it's the fans. But we would never admit it. Never admit it. I have a question. So why is this, this, this bullet list sort of highlights a crisis of, of purpose and of meaning in, in, in life? And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say life as opposed to human life, but let's just we're humans, so let's just say life. Where is, where does this crisis stem from? What why is why are you worried that we have a crisis of meaning, and then where are you proposing that we get our meaning from? So, one of the contentions of uh, uh, that Vervecki makes in his course is that we had built these. Just to be clear, I am asking you. Okay. I. I, I'm, I'm curious about Vervecki, but I am ask, I'm asking you guys because mm. we're ingesting, digesting, and now regurgitating Vervecki and these other philosophers and thinkers and as it pertains to us in our life. So I, I imagine that this has some meaning to you specifically. Yes. And yes. I want to know what, what Vervecki would say for sure, but I also do want to know specifically what you think and, and what yeah, your thoughts you, are. You were drawn to this for a reason. Well, one of the reasons... And not just him, but everybody. One but of yes. the reasons that I was drawn to it was because I felt that it helped me to understand my own experience in a deeper way. And... Like, I'm sure many evangelicals, many ex-evangelicals have gone through this process, which is something like a microcosm of what Western civilization has gone through over the last 400 years with when you leave the church and when you, when you say, when you can finally admit to yourself, I don't think that this absolute system that, and not, I mean, we've had some great representatives of evangelicalism, right? So I don't want to say that this is evangelicalism, but at least the flavor that I was participating in, the practice that I went through, was not sufficient for me, right? So I leave that system, and I finally can think to myself the thought, maybe that's not the structure, maybe that's not the way that I want to interpret reality, is through those, through those lenses, right? But what you find is that, now you have a lot of very difficult work to do in deconstructing, understanding which parts of that were good and true and beautiful and that you want to hang on to and which parts you want to leave behind you. So I've, I've gone through the microcosm of that experience of having my worldview collapse and having to rebuild it and understand, okay, now I need to remake the meaning-making systems that I'm going to use to get through life. Because when you have this collapse of a system that you were using to understand everything around you, it's very personally traumatic to, 
to just be looking at the pieces of it in your hands and say, well, now what do I do? Well, and I think everybody gets there, right? I mean... No. <laughs> okay. No, they don't. Maybe, maybe... Many people don't. Many people stay inside that system for their entire lives, even when they see glimpses of fracture or discontinuity or inconsistency, they stay. And I mean, I, I want to believe that maybe, maybe they're experiencing that kind of deconstruction somewhere else in their life, but that's not been what I've witnessed. Um, I think that this particular sort of just emptiness and despair that comes out of everything falling apart is, is something that maybe is particular to a religious experience or coming out of. Well, maybe I should modify that and just say that people that question their indoctrination go through this sort of deconstruction where all of a sudden you're on rocky ground. You don't know where your base is. You don't know what's real anymore. And you have to sort of pick pieces apart and figure out like, how am I going to now survive? How am I now going to move forward with a new worldview or a new whatever you want to call it, a new worldview that, you know, makes sense to me that sort of sloughs off the old that doesn't jive with me anymore and now arms me with, with new ideas that are going to be more valid in, in moving forward. But so the... Well, I want to ask you a question about ahead, that, which please. is what other kinds of systems have you seen that people have needed to buck off outside of religious systems, like things that they were indoctrinated in? What other kinds of systems... I mean, religion kind of has a monopoly on indoctrination in in a certain sense. Um, there aren't too many systems that come to mind, and I'm, I'm open to suggestions, but there aren't too many systems that come to mind where you are taught from childhood and indoctrinated into a certain worldview, a certain belief system, other than a, a religious system. Gender. Gender would be one of those systems, absolutely. Uh, because we're given gender norms up, up till now. We're given gender norms um, when we're born and expectations and ways of dress and ways of being in the world. And I do hear this reflected in my friends that are no longer... Um, um, can't get the word. Cis-normative? Uh, yeah, cis-normative <laughs> or binary. Um, because they they have to question all of these things as well, or they've been questioning these things for decades um, and are finally being able to find words for why they don't fit in the binary in that way. So I I would think gender... I don't know if gender dysphoria... I I agree with you that that's a system that we're born into and that uh, to some degree is given to us. I don't don't know if I agree that we're indoctrinated into it... um, but no, it's a good well, example. You're part of the patriarchy, <clears throat> so it's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> As I mean, am I, I. I mean, I think it, it's a much broader thing, and it, it's one of those unconscious things that shapes all the worldviews. It's present in the, the patriarchy is present in religious systems, obviously, but it doesn't come from them. It's present in the world at large, and so I think even as those systems start to break down, I mean, we're seeing the response to that, and it is um, we're seeing in culture some hyper-masculinity and some um, aggression towards like, why are women being able to tell these stories and take down men? Well, because they've been being abused forever. And um, the resistance to that is so powerful that I think it does testify that there is a a type of system there um, that when that comes apart, it can be very destabilizing for people. Um, And I could see that. it's not. I don't know how deep we want to get into yeah. the the gender issues that uh, are. Do zombies have gender? I don't think so. I, I don't think they're sexual, so yeah. I don't know that they would have a gender. Um, if they could only reproduce, it'd be so much better. Yeah, without just eating other people's right. brains. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was gonna say that. Isn't that the way they reproduce? Is when you eat the brain, right. and then that person becomes. But there's no homo or hetero. It's just whatever you eat is what turns into a zombie. <laughs> Even like a horse, right? You could eat a dog and it would turn into a zombie or a rat or a horse. Exactly. At least in the, in the, in the lore and in stories that I've seen and read. But to, to get back to that question, well, I just want to make sure. And, you, and I think he's got one. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. Did you... Where is this... And maybe you're about to speak to this, but where is this concern about meaning in life? Where is it coming from? And... 
where are you suggesting that it does come from the meaning of life? So you're saying we have a huge concern of we're losing meaning. We're becoming nihilists, right? And there's an airplane going overhead. So I hope this comes across on the audio, but uh, you're saying that there's a concern for meaning and, and I don't see it personally. Um, but I have a worldview that's grounded and I've gone through years and years of, of, you know, research and, and reading and, and debate and, you know, conversation to try and, and ground myself in a worldview that I don't have to worry about meaning. And I'm just curious, where is this coming from? And then, and then where are you saying meaning does in fact come from in the end? Uh, so I, I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to balk at your question of the meaning of life. Um, however, that's interesting because I think I can answer that question. Oh, Go ahead, I, please. I love it, Paul. Please. Um, so, uh, so here's, here's what I'm going to speak from. I'm going to speak from experience or, um, research or knowledge that I've, I've come across. Right. And, um, so, uh, gosh, what's, what are the Aston's first names? I don't know. But, uh, one of the most widely, um, accepted, uh, and tested uh, um, research studies on meaning um, spirituality for college students returned on an, on a sample of about 112,000 undergraduate college students that about 55% were interested, I think by their junior year in college, having some sort of now college was defined broadly classroom out inside classroom, outside classroom in um, exploring their spirituality during college, um, and their meaning, um, during college. And where does it come from? I think, um, wait a second. So you're saying that they, they are now learning in college about what the meaning of life is. No, no. I'm saying they desire to learn that. They desire to learn that. Correct. So and and it it wasn't even, and it wasn't even, um, it wasn't even, phrased like the, the, the phrase in the assessment isn't meaning of life. It's spiritual matters or spirituality. Um, which I think maybe the closest example we have to, to, uh, that broad of a study in terms of meaning, meaning, right. And meaning making, um, it seems to be, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm the type of person who again, won't speak definitively, but it seems to be a pretty common, um, and I don't know if we can agree on this or not agree on it, uh, issue that people are looking for meaning. Well, I, I, I'm not suggesting that people don't look for meaning. Sure. I'm suggesting where's the crisis? Oh, where sure. is this? W- w- well, I mean, what I see in, in some of this literature and, and what I hear is that nihilism somehow equates to a movement away from theology sure, or a movement towards I don't know what the enlightenment or, or a more critical science based thinking, or, or if you don't like that terminology, you could say a more, um, evidence objective. We were talking about objective versus subjective, a more objective way of looking at things. I think that's a good question. I, it, part of it probably comes from, is uh, that true though? Are we equating science or scientific thinking to nihilism? Well, I think, I think Christina has an answer for your yeah, previous please. question. Just so, butt in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to me, I don't, I, I think you can even get more basic than that. Um, especially with that last point, humans want their activities to inform them, to shape them from when they become zombies, get no reward from their own activities. even when they want, how many times do we just go in like day after day? Okay. You wake up, you get in the shower, you get dressed, you go to work, you work, you come home, you have dinner, you play with the kids, you do chores, you clean the house, you do laundry, you go to bed. How many times do you repeat that same scenario every day? And once you become that scenario, then when you become more of a zombie-like. So I think it's when when you were saying, like, when do we realize that is, I think when we realize that we are becoming this mundane, just doing motions day after day, that you realize, hey, I need something more in life. And, that, and that's where I think you find the meaning. But are we justified in in adding meaning that isn't evidentially there. 
I think so because I mean just repeating those motions and I've I've done it before and I think a lot of people have where you're just living you know just to get through that day I think you have to find that meaning in life because you will go crazy you will just you know die you know physically mentally you know you would just you don't know what to do with yourself I would also add that um this is a subtle point, and it's it's, uh, but it's the crucial point. The subtle point is that what we had in Christendom prior to the Enlightenment was a story about what the world is and who we are. Objectivity gives us scientific facts, but it's the human mind that turns facts into a story, right? So. What's happened with a material, I'm using air quotes here, material worldview is that we've taken scientific facts about the origin of life, the origin of the earth, what planets are, what gravity is, et cetera, et cetera. And we've turned that into a story about who we are in the world. So when you do that, because there's no there's no meaningful story inherent in the scientific facts, we've robbed ourselves of being able to tell ourselves a story about who we are and what we're doing that's meaningful to us. Well, here, here's a story. So, 13.87 billion years ago, the Big Bang occurred, right? Matter, energy, everything came into existence. Fast forward to about 4.5 billion years ago. And a whole bunch of stars exploded in supernovas, creating all the elements needed to create the, for gravity to create the sun that we orbit and all the planets that orbit our sun and us. Like every molecule in your body was generated in a star. And we now, as human beings, are the universe's realization of itself. We're, as far as we know, the pinnacle of what can happen in a, in a universe such as ours. How do you not find meaning in that? How do you not look at that idea and think, I'm a, a collection of molecules that were created in a sun, <laughs> in a star, that exploded and then coalesced into another solar system that eventually evolved to a species that could think of, understand, envision, and predict. That's, that's what's so interesting to me. Predict what's going to happen in the future. We are the universe realizing it itself, essentially. So I think... That's a pretty good story, isn't it? It's, yeah. It is a good story, but it's, it's, not still, so bad. it's still just a story. Not just a story. It's a story that takes into account all the facts, is contradicted by none of the facts, and has yet to be updated by a better story that takes into account more facts and is also not contradicted by any of the facts. And I think the problem that we run into is that thousands of years ago, when the biblical story was told... There was no Western enlightenment. There were no facts. There was no math or science or reason. Or, I mean, it was story and mystery and awe and wonder. And well, so to be clear, there, the there story were some of Genesis of those is poetry. It's po- and so what I just don't to, want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, I'm, I'm not. Saying. Here's there, what I'm saying. There were no, some saying, of those things. What I'm saying is that is that Western Christianity, unfortunately, uh, it forgot the origin of its story because it was wrapped up in a worldview of objectivity and rationality and reason and all the things in which you're saying that like can be explained. And they're now trying to, and this, and this is, this is a conventional Christian problem is that they tried and fundamentalism. They ran into this as well. They tried to like, how do we get this story to make sense based on the facts that we know? Well, that's just ridiculous. You can't wait, the, sorry, the, which story, like the biblical story. How do we get the biblical story to make sense based on the facts? Yes. Yeah, and okay. they can't, and they shouldn't, and they can't, well, because they're, they're never two going different to be able stories to telling two not, different points of view. So let science and 
let let it speak for itself and let there be wonder and awe in that. Well, I think and then there let is. the poetry of the Genesis story also speak for itself. But don't confuse the two. They can still be paradoxically true, I think. I just don't see how the Genesis story is true. It, meaning the well, Bible story. You can't well, it, because you're you're locked in a worldview of Western Enlightenment thinking. This is our problem. No, I I grew up in a worldview of literal Genesis That's truth. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we can take a field well, trip to Kentucky to the Creation Museum and they will tell you that no, 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 it's but that's, true. That's that's not where I, I want to understand with your point because well, I grew my, up my point as is that you're, a biblical literalist, right? I and I did too, but I was able to understand an Eastern worldview within a Western framework that made me go, "Oh, I don't have to continue to to live in this framework anymore. I can I can exist in the paradox and the reality of the poetry and the mystery and the, all the story that the people tried to explain back in the day before they knew about science." And let science speak for itself. My wife's a doctor. I know nothing about medicine. I'm like, hey, give me your information. I'm not gonna. If what should I ask my doctor? You know, as a doctor, what should I ask my doctor? I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you, as a professional, tell me what. That's what I do with with uh, environmental, you know, climate change and all that. Do any of us around the circle actually really know what's going on? No, we don't. But I'm gonna trust the 90. Is it seven? 97 percent? Eight? 98 percent? of scientists who say that climate change is a real thing, global warming is actually happening. Again, I'm not going to argue with my fundamental evangelical Christian friends and not all are that, are that way because I'm like, hey, guys, let these people speak for themselves and you can tell your own story about how you find meaning in the world. But they shouldn't be at war with each other. I think that's the problem that, that Western civilization, and this isn't religion, this isn't Christianity, this is where we live. Our worldview tells us that we need to have a binary, which means we need to have a scapegoat and a fight and, and a devil and a God. Like This is where atheism and Christianity are the same. This is that's where right. I think Tink Tinker is like coming back to me right now that's going, right. Uh, why, why can't they live together? 